Okay, okay, so uh, let's let's move on now to the second line. The earth was, which is often translated as darkness and void, or formless and void. To, to be uh, perfectly honest, this second sentence, the second Pasuk, is a complete mystery to me. I have no idea what it's saying. Uh, which is an interesting question in of itself, and you might be wondering why am I talking about it if I have no idea what it's what it's going what, what it's saying. And the question is: is it's an enigmatic in the Chazal? The rabbis say that the first uh, six days are a mystery, but we need to really understand why. And the question is, which is the, a very important and maybe uh, a question that people don't necessarily think about is from whose perspective is the Torah being written? Um, you know, when we think about, you know, Shakespeare or even so-called other books from other religions, it's very clear from whose perspective the, the, their book is being written from. But when we're talking about the Torah, this is not as clear as, uh, not clear at all. And, um, Although it reads like it's written from the perspective of somebody somewhere, um, clearly the first six days throws that whole concept into question. And then you, you'll start to realize why the first six days are so difficult. So the Torah at some point starts to be written from a perspective of a person. And Jakob Weinberg points this out. If you go to chapter 2, verse 5, you'll see there, the Colosseus are there, all the shrubs of the field. This is the first usage of the word field. Field is a human perspective. Animals don't see fields. Stars don't see fields. Trees don't see fields. Only human beings think in terms of fields, and therefore clearly the Torah is being written from a perspective of humanity. Now, now, and, and that's not so simple because the perspective is going to change throughout the Torah. In fact, this week's Parsha, Parsha's Devarim, starts with Eilah HaDevarim Asher Dibay Moshe Elbenizah Be'ever HaYadam. Right, Moshe is standing on what is called the east bank of the Jordan, and the Torah describes his uh, his position on the other side of the, of the Jordan. Clearly, the Torah is talking from the perspective of being in the land of Israel. So that that's the perspective there. So between um, chapter two, verse four, verse five. And the book of Deuteronomy, the perspective has changed. And that's how the Torah is going to view and describe the reality that it's talking about. So that's great when you get to chapter 2, verse 5. So whose perspective is it from before that? So it's easy to say, well, God's perspective, and that's, that's definitely true. But what is God seeing, and how does he describe that in a way that we can read that? Because when God's looking at something, so to speak, he doesn't see, in the way we see it, a table. He sees 
the atoms, the physical structure, the malachim, the forces, the, the past, the present, the, the future. He sees everything in that moment. So how, you, how does he describe a table in a way that we can relate to it? So that's the problem we have with the first six days. Whose perspective is it? Nevertheless, we can draw some fascinating concepts from this first six days, but just to keep that in mind as we're going through it. So the, the, the third verse, V'yom Elohim, Ye'or, God says, let there be light, V'yor, and there was light. So this is the first uh, uh, thing if you want to use the technical expression, the first thing that's being created is light. The last thing that's going to be created is Adam. I'm not skipping over, we're going to go through the days, but, but, I, but to give a, a sense of what's going on here, we need to look at the end. The, the last thing that's created is Adam. And the rabbis always had a problem with this. Chazal always had a problem with this because the Gemara says, why in Judaism... Uh, importance has precedence. And this is a, a, a concept that you find in the secular world too, that what is most important comes first. And in, in the Jewish concept, the whole point of creation is humanity, people. So why is humanity created last? And uh, it's an interesting question for debate. When you're teaching a class, you get all kinds of interesting answers, but the Talmud answers very interestingly is to give human, give people huma, humility. That a worm was created before him, which is a, a an interesting idea to cut to the chase. It's an it's how does this give anyone humility? I can understand humility that you're not a big shot, but I've never felt that telling an arrogant person. Uh, that a worm created before then does much to their ego. It, it might be that if I was to tell them a worm created before them uh, would, would give them humility, but not me, that might, that might take them down a peg or two. But um, how does that give anyone humility? So the answer is, it's not, that, it's not the idea that a worm was created before them. It's the fact that a worm was created before them. And let me explain. So people think of the first six days of creation like filling a house. Like there's a house and you need furniture and the, and the delivery truck just showed up. So you put the table here, the chairs there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's to go through, you move things around, and everything's happy. And that's not what it is at all. What it really is, is it's, it's a, a, um, an onion, like an onion, like you're building on layers, except you're building from the outside in. See, each layer goes on the previous layer and is built onto the previous layer and needs the previous layer. So the plants need the sun, the plants come after the sun, which is an interesting thing in of itself, because despite the fact that this is written three and a half thousand years ago, what's mind-boggling is how much this coincides with evolution, our understanding of evolution today. It, there isn't a if you were to write down how if scientists write down how they think the world came into existence the idea that in a hundred years from now it would still coincide with what they believe and let alone three and a half thousand years from now is obviously ridiculous we see how quickly things change in their understanding of of the physics of existence so 
for the people to write down three and a half thousand years and still three and a half thousand years later science does not contradict this is absolutely mind-boggling but it's it's deeper than that 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 the 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 each layer of creation is built on the previous layer so again the plants need the light but the light doesn't need the plants if all the plants were to disappear the sun and the moon could, could not care less, and vice versa would be in big trouble. The animals come after the plants, so the animals need the plants, but the plants don't. If all the bananas were to, were to stop, the monkeys would be very upset. But the other way around is not, it does, it's not, it's not a problem. Right? And there are some, obviously, like when you build a house, you wire it in a way that, that the foundations are necessary for later things, and later things help the foundations and things like that. But essentially, that's how, it, that's how creation works. The last thing to be created, in other words, nothing needs this, is humanity. Humanity has no, there's nothing in creation that needs people. People need everything else. The best humanity can do is figure out how not to destroy everything else, to minimize, so to speak, his footprint. It's interesting. Al Gore, in his beginning, in the beginning of his book on uh, uh, about um, uh, the uh, movement to protect the world, says the the environmental movement is a spiritual movement. Now, I don't know if he referenced. He did not reference this, but this is the idea that human beings have to figure out how to fit into the world. And that's really what humility is. Humility is not like a self-deprecation. Humility is knowing your place. And if you move out of your place on a global sense, in other words, if we do destroy the world, the world won't be forgiving. Whereas, whereas um, uh, the monkeys have to, again, the monkeys have to fit into how many how many bananas there are. The, the bananas won't fit into how many monkeys there are. Right? The world won't fit in to us. We have to figure out how to live within the world. And that's humility on a global sense, but also on a personal sense, that the, the family you live in and the work environment you work in and everything will not fit into you. You have to figure out how to fit into it. And when you move outside of what you your space you have, you end the world ends up, so to speak, slapping you in the face. And we've all had, probably everyone on this call, has had that experience where our, our ideas of life don't fit to reality and we get a rude awakening in the end. And that's the humility. Words, the world was built in such a way that humanity has to figure out how to live with that. And therefore, going back now to our first Verse, we see the significance of this idea. God said, let there be light. In other words, everything is built on the previous layer. And the core of all these different layers, which everything is built upon, is light, which is absolutely mind-boggling because three and a half thousand years after this sentence was written, a Jewish boyfriend from Germany comes along and says, everything is relative, meaning... Relative to this, this is the core of everything. This is stable, and everything else has to work within that, and is relative to that, is light. And that's exactly what the Torah says. It's a mind-boggling mind -boggling concept that, that so coincides with what we see to be true. 
Uh, just to add one, one other little idea, later on, the Torah is going to say in uh, Parsha Shmini that the, the whole idea of kashrut is the same thing. That uh, why, why the laws of kashrut, the laws of animals, come uh, before the laws of, uh, in Tazria, the laws of, um, of human beings, for the same idea that the, the Chazal brings down, the same way creation was, was mimics creation. And the idea there is also the same kind of thing, that a, a, a home in which there is kashrut is teaching children that they have to live within the rules of, um, uh, of, the, of the, the home won't, won't adapt to them. They have to adapt to the home which is a very meaningful thing because children don't come into the realm of making moral choices till much later in life. They're not actually allowed to actually make a decision that will have any impact until they're much older. What Kashru teaches them that despite the fact that in everything else there is flexibility, no matter what your rules are, you know, candy or whatever it is, if your kid whines long enough, they're generally speaking going to get whatever they want. But when it comes to kashrut, they learn very quickly. They have to figure out how to live within the rules of kashrut because the kashrut won't fit into them. And it's a very important lesson that they get very early in life, which is going to apply in everything else they do, which is being able to see what the world needs and where you fit in rather than trying to make the world fit into you. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you next week. Any questions? If you have any questions, take your, take your phone off mute, number one. Uh, I think we're good. Thank you, everybody.